0: Listening to Resonance 104.4 FM, I'm Morgan Quaintance and this is the Studio Visit 2017 end-of-year special recorded in front of a live audience at Wising Art Centre in Cambridge. <laughs> now, now 2017 was a year delusional demon headmistress Theresa May told us
1: Each generation should live the British dream
0: and that dream is what I believe in. But while she saw Britain through the bizarre, enid blight and acid trip of her imagination, the realities of austerity, social cleansing, global conflict and domestic division meant most of us spent the year living a waking nightmare. Strangely, the three most prominent forms of cultural and political discord were also mirrored in art world intrigue and current affairs. So racism, fiscal crisis and interpersonal abuse came in the forms of (coughs) crypto-fascism at LD50, massive overspends at Documenta and the resignations of Knight Landsman at Art Forum and Gavin De La Honte at the Dallas Art Museum. But 2017 wasn't all bad, and to prove it, this is the inaugural year of Studio Visits Immaterial Awards. Awards given for excellence in the arts in four categories. Best exhibition, best criticism, best ethnography, and best moment. And here to share their 2017 annual highlights, and probably a few lowlights, are curator and writer Aminpreet Sandhu.
2: Hi, Morgan. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Artist Erica Scotti. Hello. Writer John Douglas Miller. Hello. Independent curator, writer, and educator, Shamakana. Hello.
2: All
0: right, so thanks everybody for coming and thanks studio audience for being so vocal a minute ago. Uh, Amon, uh, you just travelled all the way from the other end of the UK this morning. So where were you and what were you doing?
2: Yeah, so I was in Burnley for the week. Um, I was at a women's gathering which um, was called Shifting Loyalties, organised by an organisation called uh, Idol Women. And yeah, it was quite an interesting experience because the reason sort of why they had this gathering was to bring sort of women, activists, ladies that were part of the women's movement together to really just, um, I guess, to share sort of stories, to excavate histories, but also to see um, if there's ways of building new relationships and new networks. Um, and just to give you a bit of a background on Idle Women, um, it was established in 2015 by Rachel Anderson and Sisso Boyle. Rachel Anderson used to be Head of Interaction at Artangel, um, and also before that she was um, heading up the Learning Programme at um, South London Gallery. So I was always watching what Rachel was doing because it was kind of really closely aligned to some of my um, interests. And what was so interesting was just hearing why they, both of them had made... Um, the shift away from the arts, which they sort of described um, was at the end sort of at odds with what they were doing sort of outside of the art world in the women's movement. So, um, and in some ways they felt like they were facilitating the violence of the Institute. So they really wanted to leave London and think about sort of what they could do outside of that. And also, you know, they were acutely aware that lots of women's resources and centers um, were closing down um, everywhere. So they were really interested in thinking about how can you make space for women and it's not taken away um, and what's possible and sustainable. So that was the sort of start of Idle Women.
0: And, and was it like a, it sounds like it was an intergenerational thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was. So when I said that there were sort of um, activists there, there were sort of women there from um, who had taken part in the Greenham. Um, wow. Yeah, so, you know, real sort of activists from like the 70s, um, and 80s, I don't know why I'm saying real, but yeah, so (laughs) like, you know, so just, it's, you know, so it's different from sometimes the discourse that you have in the art world, and just people who have, you know, embodied that for um, decades, and then there was, um, you know, amazing sort of historians, like um, the American historian Max Dashu, who does a lot of work around mother rights, and female iconography, so she gave some amazing lectures, um, and just sort of, Yeah, female iconography across sort of timelines and cultures as well. So it was just so like, um, and also it was quite powerful being in an all um, female space. And I didn't really realise it would be that way. Um,
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, so you've literally just come, What, what was the train station that you joined? to get here?
2: Burnley Manchester Road. I didn't
0: even know there was a station called that.
2: (laughs) And it was the first time I'd been to Burnley and Mm. that was really interesting. And I think the thing what I really like about the model of Idle Women is that they work with um, other organisations who don't sit within the art world. For example, they're setting up a centre in Blackburn with HUMRAS, who are a refuge centre for South Asian women who are facing or in recovery from domestic violence. So this is really sort of important work that they're doing and um, they're also aware that sort of um, pooling their resources is a way that, you know, some of what they have in mind um, can be achieved. Their long-term aim is to own land, so there was a lot of conversation around, um, you know, Having access to land because when you think about what was happening in Greenham you know that was about sort of reclaiming public space um, yeah so just really rich conversations a lot to process as, as well but definitely in terms of building new friendships and networks I think as an independent curator it's really important to always go outside of your work and you know put yourself in different situations so yeah don't just
0: go to galleries yeah. or like but one of the uh, things that sounds really encouraging about that was that there was some specific outcomes that the 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 gathering was convened to work towards
2: yeah so just so the key things that we were looking at was um sort of domestic violence um and you know just um violence sort of thinking about that sort of broadly in terms of institutional violence and then sort of domestic violence also reproductive rights and then also um, thinking about um, you know I guess sort of um, parity across sort of pay so those you know there was sort of maybe three or four strands but really it was up to us to really take things where we wanted to um, and you know and follow up on conversations with people that we want to build relationships up with and that's really rare I think that you I don't know you have that in a conference, and it's all very didactic, you know, just in terms of how knowledge is passed between people. So it was such a great space to, yeah, just carry on having conversations.
0: What I like about this is one of your other picks this year was, um, I guess, the obverse, or n- well, not the obverse, it's the companion, really, to your experience um, at Pendle. That's that's right. Yeah. It. And uh, this was um, so your second highlight of the year was the, a documentary called The Work. Four Days to Redemption. And I'm really glad you picked this. It was f- phenomenal. One of the yeah. best things I've ever seen. So, so basically, just to give people an idea, like, um, it was a Storyville documentary that looked at an interesting form of like reparative therapy in Folsom Prison. So, is that right?
2: Yep, that's correct.
0: And like, so the the, the documentary follows three men from outside as they participate in a four day group therapy retreat with uh, level four convicts. And I think level four means probably the most extreme. Uh, hitherto violent individuals. Yeah. But it was a kind of um, new form of... Well, primal screen therapy is a bit dismissive, I think, but it did involve kind of guttural, like, exhuming a yeah, lot of pain. And tell me what you felt about it.
2: So I think the first... Well, I was going to say, the first thing to say is I cried. So you know, <laughs> it, it had a real effect on me. But also, I think the thing is, it took you to a place that I would, you know, never sort of go to myself. I've also... Because... This year, thinking about sort of women's spaces and um, you know going to Pendle was really important. But alongside that, I have been really interested in um, ideas around sort of male masculinity and where that sort of um, where that is now. And one of the strongest things that were coming, you know, that came out of this documentary was, you know, sort of men that had been taught how how to be and just yeah. So that was sort of one thing. But also just. Um, you know the journey that you go on as a viewer in that documentary there were times when i felt like i just shouldn't be um watching and i really sort of loved the way the director um didn't really intervene in the narrative it was very much a fly on fly on the wa- wall and at at sometimes um it was kind of it was tiring because you saw the same sort of repetitive um um you know therapeutic process but yeah i thought i thought it was amazing so
0: and one of the things that struck me when I was watching it was that, like, absent fathers or fathers in general have a lot to account for, yeah. and that's something that really needs to be well delved into and unpacked, really. Yeah. And like, I suppose masculinity really has been looked at this year quite a lot, and, and what what a kind of wounded, but then um, because it's wounded, like, attacking masculinity is capable of doing. Yeah. I mean, from like, let's say, pathetic people in like the alt right scene to the ultimate wounded masculine person in the world. Donald Trump, Trump, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, um, but, yeah, this th- the documentary seemed to me to offer a positive way of working through some of this stuff. I mean, did you think so as well?
2: No, completely. And I was, you know, also just taken aback by the space they had created. Um, and, you know, I think sort of just going back to what you um, also said earlier, I think another thing that was really powerful was, like, just how, like, you know, in sort of... W- you could kind of if there's any sort of way that you can understand the violence it's through sort of that documentary as well because it's just the flip side of you know that first wound or the wound that they've had and just to kind of um humanize that a bit i thought was not a bit a lot was really um powerful as well but um yeah so the space that they um had like managed to create was kind of key to that so what you're saying about that redemptive and what i loved about it as well is that A lot of these convicts are from, you know, sort of huge gangs and they make a promise when they go into that space that they'll leave all those sort of, I guess, allegiances at the door. And that was quite amazing, where sort of in their everyday life that they're, you know, that they have all these sort of of tribes that they're part of and the way that that was just kind of, you know, I guess it was a sort of undressing, a continuous undressing as well. Yeah,
0: because it felt felt to me like th- those are kind of positive attributes of a constructed masculinity, really. Mm. But th- those are all often used and turned to um sort of coercive effect by gangs. So yeah. the idea of loyalty, dependability, understanding, strength, and approval—you know—you always hear that oh, these people have my back. But that's one of the things they do in the program, which really affected me. They were like. When You know, they were like, we got, you've got, like, ten bad dudes behind you. Like, go yeah, there. What's yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know?
2: yeah. And one of the most powerful scenes was when, um, you know, one of the um, convicts was saying, you know, uh, he was talking about, you know, I, I feel like I want to give up. I want to commit suicide. And just that sort of process when someone else came up to him and they were just spent, you know... You spent five minutes just watching um, them just sort of going through that process where he was like, you know, you're not going to do this. This isn't going to happen. And, yeah, just... Really powerful stuff. I can't really articulate it in a way that's really sort of... Does it just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. because you you just have to watch it, but it's a must-see. And also, yeah, just in terms of therapeutic processes, I just found it really... I I think they're doing some really amazing work, and it's just worth looking at just alone for that
0: so unfortunately the storyville strand which is like a strand that's not produced by the bbc but is bought by the bbc uh, is no longer available on iplayer but and i tried to watch it in sort of pirate version yeah. this morning but it's not available either but which makes me think it's gonna get some sort of a low-level commercial release. Yeah. So hopefully it might be out on one of the many like streaming providers online so people can catch it soon. But if you haven't seen it, it's like an absolutely phenomenal uh, documentary. But now it's time to announce the first of this year's Immaterial Awards. Now they're called Immaterial because there's no cash, there's no no prize, there's nothing except our praise. But everyone's good with that. And uh, so, Amin, I'm going to ask you to do the honours. Please open the stapled envelope and tell us the recipient. Of? The, yeah, you're over there. Yeah, just, <laughs> I'm just trying to do it with one hand, sorry. Okay. It's La La Land. Uh,
2: the 2017 award for best exhibition goes to Sherry... I can't Silver. read that. Silver. Silver for We Are Watching Oz in London. Right,
0: so... <laughs> So, from 1967 to 1973, the British incarnation of the underground magazine Oz explored politics, sexual liberation, counterculture, civil rights, and societal mores in in a style that can only be explained as a kind of irreverent psychedelic satire. Spanning both divides of the pre- and post-Altamont hippie era, editors Richard Neville, Jim Anderson, and Felix Dennis, along with contributors including Germaine Greer, Lillian Roxon, Robert Crumb, and Marsha Rowe, The magazine dealt with the optimism cynicism and ultimately the contradictions at the heart of the underground it was also a dab hand at revealing societal mores a talent that would land the team in an infamous obscenity trial for an edition edited by kids one of which was diane sigich actually anyway so uh sherry silver uh, her incredible exhibition at chelsea space was on display from the 14th of june to the 14th of july and was an awe-inspiring mix of clearly communicated deep research beautifully displayed archival materials, and an underlying narrative thread that both celebrated and interrogated Oz's history. I was interested in finding out the story behind Studio Visit's best exhibition of 2017.
3: Slightly long story, but um, I did my MA in Curating and Collections at Chelsea College of Arts. And following that, I was awarded the Chelsea Arts Club Trust Research Fellowship. And my research interest had always been about looking into Australian artists in London. And through the arts club, I was introduced to a woman called Clytie Jessup, who was an artist and gallerist. And she happened to mention Oz Magazine and doing a fundraising auction for the obscenity trial in 1971. And embarrassed as I was, I had to say I'd never heard of Oz Magazine, Um, which, being Australian, uh, I was (laughs) shocked that I'd never heard of it. Um, And it being something from the sixties and seventies, which really did have such a huge impact on so many people. The more I looked into it, the more interested I became in it, in the subject. And um, part of my research fellowship also meant that I was working at Chelsea space um, with the director of exhibitions, Donald Smith and my colleague Karen DeFranco. And they encouraged me to do the exhibition.
0: It sounds like you were learning about the subject as you were kind of doing your research for the show itself.
3: Yeah. I really was. Um, I was. I really came into it with no knowledge and I found, luckily, the University of Wollongong in Australia had published all of Oz online. So that was my first entry into sort of looking at the magazine and getting an impression of the written material and also the graphic material and um, just general sort of research online. And then through Clytie Jessup, um, she introduced me to people who had actually been involved with the magazine. and that was quite intimidating to then speak to those people because they'd lived through it and been part of it. And I was there with no knowledge. So um, I had to read about it and find out as much as I could as quickly as possible so that I could then engage with these, these interesting people. (laughs) Marsha Rowe contributed so much to my research. She was so generous and I think it was really important to have her voice in there and quite a lot of the exhibition material came from her personal collection. So whether it be her employment letter from when she worked for Oz in Sydney, or there was a recipe on how to make hash cookies, that was from her personal collection as well. And then how her voice ended up developing. And I guess she she mentions how she had this realisation that the personal is the p- political, and that propelled her to start Spare Rib. And it was from her work with Oz that basically... Yeah, made her do that. So I think um, showing the outcomes of Oz, I think, was important. And, yeah, I'm really glad to hear that that came across in the exhibition.
0: And what did you want to achieve with the show?
3: I really wanted to show people about Oz. um, And I thought, because I found it so interesting that other people would. So I wanted to make people aware of Oz and how important the magazine had been at the time in raising... Certain political issues, social issues, and how interesting the graphic design and the art was behind it. And then to highlight the individuals that had contributed to it as well. Basically, shout from the rooftops look, come and have a look at this interesting thing that happened in the 60s um, to a new audience, hopefully. I mean, there, there was obviously an, already an audience for it, but I was hoping that maybe people from my generation that didn't know about it would be quite interested to learn about it.
0: So that's uh, Sherry Silver there talking about um, the Studio Visit 2017 Exhibition of the Year. We are watching uh, Oz. So now I'm going to turn to Erica (laughs) Squirty for you to tell us a bit about some of your highlights of the year. But first of all, I want to talk about one of your projects, which was the Empathy Deck project. So can you just, um, for the benefit of the audience, explain what the Empathy Deck project was and your collaboration with Welcome Collection and also what the project's legacy is?
1: Mm Yeah, so um, the Empathy Deck is still live at the moment. It's a Twitter bot, and it responds to its followers' tweets with a unique Empathy card. I'm doing quotation marks for those of you who aren't in the audience, because what is an Empathy card? Well, basically, it's it's based on um, a, a tarot type of card, but also more kind of cheesy things like Oracle cards and Goddess cards. That are based on uh, chance, but they still kind of relate to you uh, in some way. So, what it does is it, it draws, uh, it's an image which is taken, it's one of my kind of collaged um, uh, images, drawings, and then there's text on top, and the text is taken from um, over 300,000 words of my um, uh, spell checked diary and kind of intercut with a, another big body of um, text taken from all t- sorts of advice and self help literature. Um, so yeah, so it sends, these, it sends tweets out to people, but there's a very particular kind of empathetic framework around the kind of language it uses, who it responds to, who it follows back, and all of that is kind of built into it, even though it's not necessarily vis- very visible um, at the outset. That's kind of its back end.
0: So just for the people who may not know, what is a bot?
1: So a bot is an automated agent, essentially, that, um, that you set up, you script it, and then it, it acts on
0: your behalf. How do you script a bot? If I was going to create one today, how would I do it and how would I script it? Uh,
1: Well, there's actually a site called um, Cheap Bots Made (laughs) Quick, I think, and it's really great. (laughs) Like You can make stuff really... Quickly, I've managed to make things really easily just using a Google uh, Doc, but this was actually made with a programmer called Tom Armitage. And actually, for me, this was interesting because it was the first time I'd worked in this way. I'd always worked in a very kind of lo-fi, just using what's at hand and and that being a specific choice. Whereas (laughs) um, working with a coder, you need money. Uh, And uh, that was where the welcome obviously made this possible. So essentially, you uh, employ somebody else, you commission them, and then you work alongside with them to kind of work out exactly how it's going to respond. Um, the, the artwork, you know, what type of text it's going to use, what type of forms of text, because one of the things it does is it, it, um, it does a lot of rhyming couplets, which, are, which also kind of, uh, uh, you know, introduce a, an element of humour as well.
0: And empathy was something that was on my mind this year, but mm-hmm. um, and it's it's interesting. Actually, it feels like it might be coming back slightly. Not as if it was a fashion, but <laughs> um, just people are kind of discovering the history of its emergence. Specifically, that it's the trajectory from late nineteenth-century German mm-hmm. aesthetics into English usage. And in the German, I'm not very good at pronouncing German. <laughs> <Normal>. uh, yeah, <laughs> is it i'm Furlong"? I think so. Something Ein like, like that. Yeah, but. Um, daria martin i don't know if you've come across her work Mm. on mirror touch synesthesia but uh, there's a large section of the book all about the kind of feeling in of empathy so what what attracted you to empathy as a as a kind of subject or, or, or a launch launch point
1: yeah I mean different things, and also by the time I think the empathy deck actually went live, I was also thinking about empathy in a different sense to do with the kind of politics of empathy mm. and this idea of who are we supposed to have empathy for, particularly when it 's often the marginalized and depressed who are often um, kind of asked to have empathy for for bigots um, you know so that became a kind of quite a contentious thing around empathy but the The reason I kind of made the bot or was interested in doing it was it was part of an exhibition which was about um what happens when the asylum... Well, it was actually on the history of the uh, asylum, so it was called Bedlam. And so my commission was kind of meant to be looking at how does the uh, asylum and Bedlam, how has it kind of disseminated into online space and into, like, um, the digital? So I was interested in in, um, forms of self-therapy, which is also an ongoing um, thing in my work which is almost like I use myself as a kind of subject of these various kind of processes of self-therapy. So it was this idea of could I make could I make a, a little something that would be sent, rather than it just be to one friend or to a couple of friends, could you kind of automate friendship on this scale so that it responds to people when they've said something? Because it, it responds particularly to emotive language. So I kind of wanted it to, to be something that would maybe like uh, make you smile or at least have that sense of, of a kind of connection um, wh- which gives you that kind of, oh, me too, or somebody else has felt that too. So there is some sense in which it, I wanted it to act in a kind of therapeutic way, but without being a therapy tool. um.
0: And I suppose like the basic way of like say, thinking about the internet or network technologies is that they're fostering a kind of sociopathy, so an absence of empathy. But would you you share that characterization or do you see it as a bit more of a complex uh, relationship?
1: I think it's definitely complex, but I think that's also true, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I mean, you know, in the writing that I've (laughs) I've done around the empathy deck, I mean, that's one of the things I've kind of tried to point out, is that, you know, uh, Twitter particularly is a space that, from from what we can see all the time with the the accounts that they decide to not shut down and the way that they prioritise traffic and participation over any kind of ethics, uh, clearly it's a place uh, in which... um, a lot of non-empathic or or aggressive, uh, racist, misogynist, transphobic uh, language circulates. Um, So, yeah, it is an attempt to kind of uh, combat that. And also maybe just to point to the ways in, in which... Uh, particularly around um, anxiety, depression, when the, sh- the sharing of that and the kind of creating of community that, that is something that also happens online. So it's kind of, you know, it's not one or the other. These things um, coexist, uh, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my, the, the project in a way is it's rather than saying like, um, because a lot of the language that it refuses to to, to respond to or to repeat is Um, like uh, offensive language in a way that's its way of saying uh, well no as artists you don't have to reflect what's in the world so you don't have to be like oh well the world's fucked up so I'm going to show you you know everything that's terrible about it you can also be like well no I'm just not going to repeat that back and that's a form of uh, you know it's it's a type of action which is still empathetic but still an action
0: so another work that you're working on at the moment uh, made me think of a sort of tendency of maybe of being in the work but also absent in the work that you produce. And this is, uh, you're saying you're working on a ghost written book. And I thought, well, how do you work on a ghost written book? Is it just by chilling <laughs> and letting someone else do the text?
1: Well, I mean, that's actually, that's done. What, <laughs> yeah. what um, yeah, I mean, I, I commissioned somebody to write my um, ghost written autobiography based only on what they found on me online. Um, and a, a packet of intimate data. So that was stuff like my um, Amazon recommended, my YouTube uh, history, uh, snippets of Facebook, and Gmail uh, conversations and emails. So uh, this was then uh, handed to a stranger who, yeah, at that point I did just chill, uh, and, then, <laughs> and then they wrote it. But then this year I then wrote an essay about it, and it's kind of funny because the essay has turned out as long as the book itself. So it's kind of turned <laughs> out this, like, there, there's an interesting there in ter- uh, thing there in, in terms of... Um, on the one hand, giving, giving over your, um, your image to somebody else to represent, you're, you know, you're allowing them to kind of have agency over it. But then arguably by then writing a, a 10,000 word essay in response, I've kind of tried to reclaim some of that and be like, actually, now no, here's my version of what this was about. But yeah, that's coming out soon. So you'll have to read it see so we'll see what you make of it.
0: Is there always this do you feel that there 's always a kind of push and pull like that in the projects that you do because I feel like there 's that, that energy like mm-hmm. it, like it 's almost like you surrender it to the point of it just not being you and then you kind of pull it back or
1: yeah i 'm really interested in that in terms of like what you surrender to somebody else and how you h- how you can allow somebody uh, either like another human, so yeah. like the ghostwriter or perhaps an automated uh, process or a combination of the two uh, to to kind of yeah, to give up some authorial control while at the same time not just going like data in, data out, or kind of I hand it to you, it's at, it's fully outsourced. So I'm kind of interested in what happens in that um, in that overlap.
0: And uh, okay, so I just want to talk briefly about your. You selected four highlights this year. We won't go too in depth with yeah, them, but because
1: um, I can't remember them all. Yeah,
0: so <laughs> we might even just mention them. So yeah. the first one was Fifty Six Artillery Lane at Raven Row. What mm-hmm. show was this?
1: So this was a show curated by um, Naomi Pierce and Amy Budd, and it was looking at the the, um, the site of the domestic, uh, or uh, the, sp- the space of the domestic as a site for sexual um uh, politics and um what was really interesting about it apart from the kind of exhibition itself was how much effort they put into the live program and i think maybe this is an overall kind of theme of 2017 of like mm-hmm. the way that live programs have um you know maybe in a cynical way as well you could say that they they p- p- it's a way to get people to come and see shows that they <laughs> might not see yeah. otherwise put a performance on but this was done <laughs> like really you know it was really solid and so that's so, uh, two of the things that I went to was um, I went to a workshop run by uh, Barnu Kapil who's originally from um, the UK but had come over from Boulder um Colorado so that was a really interesting workshop on uh, anti-memoir she called it which included meditation and drawing and uh and also went to a screening called um screening and performance called um sick time is resist time which was looking um again at forms of therapy um the kind of well I don't know what the word for it something like no not the not the military industrial complex what's the other one the pharmaceutical industrial complex
0: one of them yeah, yeah. one of those <laughs> yeah
1: um so yeah
0: I'm brilliant. So we're just going to, I'm just going to list through the, the the last few. So there was Arthur Jaffa's video at the Listen uh, show, which was like a, a strange, mysterious, like lots of money thrown at this exhibition in a building I never knew was there, yeah. but looked like some sort of I don't know, um, Evil Villain's Lair and Blade.
1: And it's also used for, um, I mean, because, yeah, it's Fashion Week. I yeah, think it's, Fashion it's Week. That, it's that yeah. kind of building, yeah. Then you
0: had Terry Temlitz at Auto Italia Southeast, mm-hmm. and you had the cy- post-Cyber Feminism Festival ICA, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you know has in this week's issue of uh, Private Eye, the conservative of a small c, a satirical magazine, been uh, mentioned in Sood's Corner. Wow. And it says, (laughs) um, Sonic Cyber Feminism's reading group intersectional approaches. And I don't know if anybody doesn't know or is familiar with Sood's Corner, it's supposed to be um, the place where uh, people use kind of pretentious verbiage and they get called out for doing so. But um, So this expression, Sonic Cyber Feminism's reading group intersectional approaches, has been uh, pulled out by the sort of conservative of a small c satirists as um, evidence of pretension happening at the ICA.
1: What, just from the title?
0: Just from the title, yeah.
1: Amazing.
0: There you go, make of it what you will. Um, but now it's time for us to, to announce the second, okay. second award of 2017.
1: <laughs> this is good, I agree with this one. <laughs> <laughs> the 2017 award for best criticism goes to Larn Absgogati, for her feature, The Art Right.
0: <laughs> Though, so, for those of you who may not remember, earlier this year, hapless gallerist and crypto-fascist enthusiast <laughs> Lucia Diego came under fire for supporting white supremacists at her gallery LD50. What initially seemed an ill-judged and naive engagement with the fascist alternative right through an exhibition looking at alt-right esoterica, was soon to be revealed as a more serious embrace of racism and a toxic soup of white supremacy, the marga mindset and all the other bargain basement philosophy used to support it. A wave of spirited condemnation and, and frankly, weakly argued support followed, but Larnabzegogati's feature in Art Monthly was, absolutely, was an absolutely skilled dissection of the facts that will ultimately, I believe, become a canonical text. It is a classic, and I asked her, where the research for that classic came
4: there from there was two things i didn't want to do in this article is i didn't want it to sound like a set of um petty squabbles between different fairly obscure ends of the art world like a kind of ultra left position and um a, a, i don't know a liberal or a sort of esoteric position and i didn't want it to sound like um a set of like just like cussing Um, post-internet art or something with with no real substance or attention or a sort of flattening of that genre Um, because I I just think it was so much more serious than the net like that just that just like the minute I started doing research I was like this isn't about me finding something politically dubious in some person's artwork because they're invested in i don't know bitcoin or whatever like it it just felt so much more serious than that when you actually listen to what was going on then this is like an actual meeting of white supremacists who want to organize and this is about a, a, an organizational structure and that to me felt like the most urgent thing to critique and the thing that was somehow obfuscated in some of the the articles like the one by um obviously the one by jonathan jones and jj charlesworth that were just sort of advocating for, for, for some sort of, like, libertarian um, free speech argument where this was so much more grave, in, in my view, than than being about that. I mean, this was literally about an art gallery hosting white supremacists, and that was the sort of level at which I wanted to make the argument.
0: Do you think that's what criticism can possibly do now? Or, like, criticism in its most effective form at the moment Needs to be less about call outs and less about kind of ad hominem stuff disguised in like kind of showy verbiage and more Mm -hmm. about cool dissection of the facts and what's actually happening so that the text stands the test of time.
4: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think that that, that's not only true, and I think the recent thing that you've written on e flux is like a brilliant example of that, and I feel really. you know, I feel like what I wrote and what you wrote is are kind of written in a similar spirit of trying to do something that actually works like a sort of investigative kind of writing. But then at the same time, I'm also really invested in writing about art in a way that isn't just, um, you know, that is about questions of form and aesthetics. And I think, it, I think that the same, although that it, it takes shape in a different sort of way when you're talking, when you're doing something sort of investigative and maybe more sociological. I think that 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 like carefulness or attention that I feel I had to work with in that article. That this just couldn't be a series of like speculations and me. Um, you know sneering at stuff I didn't like it was much more serious than that I think that's also the way that I want to treat an artwork when I write about it and I don't just want it to be about kind of tracking where something sits in a certain scene or like um moment or in terms of who people are friends with or where they're showing but rather about like actually paying attention to an artwork quite carefully
0: so that was the uh, award winner for best criticism of 2017, Lan Abzi gogarty talking about her brilliant feature, the art right. So Shamma, I'm gonna turn to you now uh, to talk to you a bit about your highlights mm. for 2017. And I think maybe let's start with uh, a mutual friend of ours and recent recipient of the Paul Hamlin, is it the Paul Hamlin Foundation mm-hmm. Award? Mm-hmm. You know who I'm gonna talk about, who is it?
5: Rahana Zaman. Oh, i mean, not close enough, yeah. Rahana
0: Zaman. Yeah, so tell us why, what was it about uh, Rahana's output this year that blew your mind uh
5: well, yeah, I mean it's this year, which tops many years of hard work um but i guess um yeah i well i kind of um i I worked with her on an event last year at Jerwood called Shades of opacity and so um yeah, um so it 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 started off as a kind of you know coming together of um affinities and then just um, kind of having this backstage um, access to her work and then also seeing kind of that materialize in a very public sphere sort of, um, so so um, with the walkie index the women of color index at um, the women's art library in in Goldsmith
0: yeah and so you and I have attended quite a few of those mm, sessions and mm. it's been interesting to watch it develop from kind of a small meeting to somewhere that's kind of well getting quite packed out and a lot of really useful things are being and talked about so yeah um
5: yeah so this uh is um something that um sh- she worked on with samia malik and michelle uh, williams gamaka um and they are kind of taking the lead from rita keegan who started this slide library um uh was it the late 80s early 90s um and it kind of laid dormant for a while until it was kind of um reinvigorated by uh, by these three w- women researchers and yeah it's just um kind of quite an unusual kind of um uh manifestation because like it's within Goldsmiths but it's not kind of endorsed by them they you know they all began as volunteers kind of using this resource and yeah, uh- and gathering people around it um yeah and it's just um yeah I think the Paul Hamilton award is just um great timing she's just had a baby but she's not slowing down at all yeah um which is amazing I'm I'm just so glad to be in contact with
0: her, and one of the things me and you talked about was like the changing role of the critic, or how the critic is being treated. And we noticed this, this sort of shift in a dynamic where organisations are almost trying to co-opt you as a kind of advisor. Mm. Like you, you wrote a piece for um, Art Monthly on the Berwick Art Festival um, film festival, and then had them contact you and say, "Oh, maybe we can talk about, it or maybe you can tell us." I mean, t- talk a bit about that. Like, I mean, do you feel like there's this um, expectation now? Or there's this action whereby the institution receives the criticism and then tries to ask you to come and work as a kind of informal, mm. unpaid advisor.
5: Yeah, behind the scenes, right? Um, yeah, I th- I think something I mean that's very um, important about t- 2017 is how the internet seems to have come into its own, and it feels like we're used to feeding back and there is this forum and and, and it's so so exciting and really like in terms of my research about immaterial art and where it can be found where it's located um it's really exciting and I've had to kind of pause my own research just to watch in a way um so like Berwick are interesting because they've employed the white pube this year as the critics in residence and I just find that so weird <laughs> that kind of critics are uh, kind of being employed to and um, you know what is the expectation how critical can they be within that paid situation um so it, yeah it's interesting to hear their response which isn't that in net far from institutionalized because mm-hmm. what their work is is not but yeah I've I found that very uncomfortable that like you write something publicly and then because you have this weird um, social and professional relationship with somebody that you feel that like they can email you and kind of put weird pressure on you and yeah, yeah
0: i got loads of that yeah <laughs> like, yeah but something else um, let's talk about some of the other selections that you had so so the release of the film get out you you were talking about get out now i haven't seen this yet mm. and it was an interesting kind of twilight zone vibe thing happening uh, so what what is it about the film that grabbed you
5: um, it's just um it's just it's, it's number one it's so funny, but it's also a thriller and it's also um a documentary <laughs> or it could be arguably um uh yeah so it's about um a mixed couple um one of the so the girlfriend is um one of the girls the actresses and girls and um so I thought that was a really interesting casting. And then um, I I don't know the name of the actor. He's a British actor, but he's playing an American. Oh, yeah. Well, anyway, they go. Um, she takes him to meet yeah. her parents after they've been dating for three months or something. And, um, uh, yeah, and it's just this um, kind of really... Um, how do I how do I describe it? Well, it's kind but, of
0: like the Bizarro World. Guess who's coming to dinner? Yeah. Mm. So instead of people being like won over by um, Sidney Poitier mm. as the African American male coming mm. into a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant household, they end up killing him, right? Isn't that...
5: Well, no, they oh, no. attempt a lobotomy on him. Oh, is that yeah, what it is? Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. and um, basically um, <laughs> um, he that he keeps meeting these other black men who, and um, all the staff at his, uh, his girlfriend's parents' place are um, victims of this lobotomy, the, the black staff. And, um, wow. and it and it's just follows his um, realisation. And, um, yeah, it's just so funny. I watched it at the Plex in Peckham, and people were applauding, they were laughing. You know, it's um, just such an exciting film.
0: So a kind of extended cultural metaphor for the emasculation of african american males
5: yeah yeah and but funny <laughs> yeah and I, and <laughs> no, and I think humor is another thing that's yeah. been so important this year, like um even from Eileen miles's work to just um yeah i'm I'm looking for humor because it's such a a way of connecting and of kind of yeah connecting from a marginal position as well to be able to kind of um i don't know gain strength in in through humour.
0: So uh, connecting from a marginal position gives us a good link uh, for our next award, so mm. can you uh, um, tell us who is the third recipient of the Immaterial Award for 2017?
5: The award for the best ethnography goes to Jenk uh, Ozbay for his book Queering Sexualities in Turkey, Gay Men, Male Prost- Prostitutes in the City.
0: So the concepts of heteronormativity and homonormativity are thankfully under interrogation more and more these days, and the debate can often feel as if it's congealing around a new set of orthodoxies solely focused on the policing of appropriate pronouns and a kind of fixed notion of fluidity centered on the performative effects of language. But oftentimes, when the boundaries between the constructions of heterosexual and homosexual blur, they do so in ways that are not as neat or label friendly as we might think. A prime example of that came in Studio Visit's Ethnography of the Year. Cenk Osbey's Queering Sexualities in Turkey, Gay Men, Prostitutes in the City, looked at male sex work in Istanbul during the noughties. What I found in the book was a vivid account of rent boys, their male clients, and the social practices and locations in which they meet and interact. Unfortunately, Jenk was unable to, uh, to talk with me earlier this week due to travel commitments, but here is an excerpt from a discussion we had earlier this year about this instant contemporary classic, and a must read for anybody interested in contemporary masculinity. It's really tricky in the sense that like,
6: first of all, yes, rent boys were in control. And the key point here is not class, not economic uh, superiority, uh, but masculinity. They had the masculine capital uh, over gay men. What gay men? Uh, were looking uh, was masculinity, embodied, authentic, real masculinity, and rent Boy were able to provide them uh, this sort of capital, bodily and cultural capital. Uh, everywhere in the world, you can find examples, different intricate cases of male prostitution, male sex work, or queer sex work, if you like. And in many parts of the world, you can find accounts on how working-class masculinity or migrants' masculinity, if you like, ethnicized masculinities are fetishized by gay men, urban middle-class gay men. So those are not new things. What was new or what was really exciting for me is their complicit usage. Uh, Both sides, like rent boys and gay men, the clients, uh, they were complicit in this kind of display of masculinity, uses of masculinity. So rent boys' sexual identity was always the confusion. Uh, They they all said that they were straight guys. Uh, They never pronounced the word, of course. They said that they were normal, right? Uh, But on the other hand, you know that they also had to pretend that they didn't enjoy sex with men. But when you talk to them uh, again and again after a certain time, you start to understand that some enjoyed having sex with men and some genuinely didn't Uh, then well those like who did this for money or for some other motivation and they uh, honestly didn't enjoy it is a category in itself but sometimes they do enjoy and this came with certain circumstances certain conditions certain ifs Uh, sometimes they some of them define it as a phase Um, this is normal, for example, to enjoy, or this is bodily, there is no meaning behind it, it doesn't say anything about my character or my personality. Uh, On the other hand, another group within the subgroup told that it's a part of me, I accept it, I enjoy having sex with men, as well as women or exclusively with men. So this also paved another way to redefine themselves as bisexuals or even in uh, some, in a, in, a, in a small number of the cases, ended up being gay, like moving to the city center and living a gay lifestyle in the, in the middle-class gay areas of the city. So this is kind of an amalgamation of like masculinity, the masculine capital, the Varosha identity, uh, whose masculinity is more superior, and more importantly, how those guys conceived their masculinity and used it, for their purposes, multiple purposes, a
0: material or a symbolic. So that was the brilliant Jenk Osbey talking about his amazing book, Queering Sexualities in Turkey, Gay Men, Male Prostitutes in the City. Now, I'd urge everyone to purchase this because it is absolutely phenomenal. And the annoying thing is IB tourists have priced it at like 60 quid uh, uh, academic budget. So put pressure on IB tourists, write to them, uh, email them, what's going on? This amazing book should be at the paperback price, 10 nine ninety nine. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to access this incredible research. So, um, yeah, anyway, get on that, right to IB Taurus this week. Let's put some pressure on them, and hopefully next year, there'll be a paperback edition that's affordable for mere mortals. So, my last guest this week is the brilliant John Douglas Miller. Now, everybody on the panel is brilliant, but I just... <laughs> I don't, you know, this isn't an exclusive thing, you know. But um, I just wanted to say that, because I... John, I haven't seen you all year. This mm. is the first time I've seen John all year. You kind of disappeared, and now I know where you were. Seems like you're in Paris for a little bit. <laughs> uh,
7: well, yeah, actually, no, maybe first I should say I do feel like I've kind of disappeared this year, and <laughs> I should say that um, actually I feel slightly disappointed that I don't get telephone calls from galleries asking me to do things for them. <laughs> um, but I think that's partly a ki- sorry. I think that's partly a, a kind of a slightly conscious choice, actually. Um, uh, to do with reasons that you kind of mentioned at the start of the, the show that and I think that Shan was also kind of alluding to as well that there's a kind of need to or I felt a need to kind of step back from things a little bit I think this year and kind of reconsider what criticism was going to be and what it was useful for and what my kind of part in that might be. And uh, I mean I don't feel like I've actually come to any conclusions on that yet but it was kind of a necessary process um, which is also explains why I haven't maybe seen as many shows in London uh, as I normally would and I've seen a lot more in Paris this year Um, and even in Paris it was more kind of the marquee shows Um, but what I noted about those marquee shows was that there's a a seriousness of intent and a seriousness of contextualization uh, that I haven't seen in major marquee shows in London for a very long time Um, You know, famously, the the wall blurbs at Tate Modern are written. I think the the guideline is for a 12-year-old who reads The Observer. Um, (laughs) uh, And and, and, uh, and that's not the case in Paris. They seem to treat their uh, uh, audience, as it were, with a little more uh, intelligence. Um, The adverse side of that, of course, is that, uh, okay, they have a certain respect for maybe a fantasy of the public sphere that doesn't really exist. Um, but the adverse side of that, of course, is French universalism. Which <laughs> um, oh, is sorry, uh, French
0: universalism. As what? Explain that. Well, I'll come to that. Okay, the sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um,
7: and one of my choices was um, uh, Georges Didi-Huberman's uprising uh, show uh, at the Jeu de Paume, which uh, finished on January the fifteenth at the start of this year. Um, and it wasn't chosen so much as a highlight as a, as a kind of uh, a problem, maybe. Um, Sorry, In that show, um, it's basically a kind of typology of uh, gestures of revolt, at least the main room perhaps was that, and of course one of the the, quite famous problem with the show, people who have seen it, was that the poster used an image of an anti-Catholic uprising in Belfast in 1967, and of course it looked like a, a moment from the street in 68 in Paris, right? But there was no kind of contextualizing of this. Even in the show, they didn't kind of point out that there was maybe a problem here. And that was a major problem with the show, was that it kind of uh, flattened the idea of of revolution or or uprising uh, to this kind of series of gestures, dehistoricized the specific elements of each of the different uprisings that it was kind of dealing with, Um, but also had this narrative, very kind of French narrative, of of uprising from usual kind of French capital P politics, from 1789, 1848, 1871, 1968. But but it didn't really deal with any, you know, it was this kind of grand narrative stuck in the kind of historical past, no kind of route out of it into the present. Um, um, No kind of, didn't really deal with uh, anti-colonial struggles, didn't really deal with feminist struggles, you know. So it was kind of massively problematic. But at the same time, uh, contained a kind of vast amount of wonderful <laughs> material.
0: So it was basically like just ignore the, the, the framework as best you can to engage with like the gold that's yeah, in I mean
7: the Yeah, I mean, he had access to all the major collections and, you know, French museums. There was amazing stuff in there, you know, letters from Baudelaire in 48, these amazing photos of Brecht's preparations for very... I mean, it was just... Know, glorious in terms of what he had access to but, yeah, but the frame was a total disaster
0: I mean sounds like we were just we were talking just before the show about how I, I, I haven't been to Paris lately but a mm. few years back I was going back and forth quite a lot and uh, I was going to the museum the, what was it called the, the art de vie the modern uh.
6: Uh,
7: it's
0: got a really long name and I I don't speak French so I can't really remember but it's the one next to Palais de Tokyo Mm. and they had a series of amazing exhibitions and one of them was the Jean-Michel Basquiat retrospective this is about four or five years ago Mm -hmm. and uh, followed by a General Idea and Ryan Tricartin like these big shows that should be big here but but, like you Mm. know the Basquiat show we get is like a really dark and like why would a painting show ever be at the Barbican Mm. it's not a painting location anyway but I, I was yeah, just it's not really a painting show anyway no, it's a yeah. kind of
7: <laughs> continuation of the myth, you know, over mythologised period of yeah, downtown yeah. New York <clears throat> uh, and the other thing that you saw was uh,
0: Harim Ferrochi at the Pompidou in Paris yeah another Paris show yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
7: uh, yeah that was actually last week um, which, uh, you know I mean I've been a, a fan of Farocki for years and years but it was kind of wonderful to see this retrospective um, and also you know it's it's so it's sort of desperately serious critical work. And it was kind of good to see that in some way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you, but it
0: wasn't all serious for you this year though, was it? Because mm. like uh, you were saying, you're keen, you're, you're really pleased to see that there's been a rise in the health of small press publishing in the UK. Mm-hmm. Now, for those of you who don't know, you're the scourge of pretension in, <sighs> in criticism. And I say that, or writing, I say that because you're, you're, fa- well, you're famous to me anyway, for writing that piece in Up Monthly about... Mm. Um, what was it again? <laughs> uh, uh, art writing. Art writing, yeah. But about the potential of art writing, which ultimately, I think, contributed to the closing down of the weird art writing course at Goldsmiths. <laughs> yeah. But So it's looking good, is it? That's the that's uh, it, yeah. It's <laughs> looking better, yeah. <laughs>
7: um, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of... Uh, in London, especially, there's a kind of wealth of, of new small publishers, um, Fitzcarraldo um, and other stories... Um, I saw yesterday actually there's a new one. I don't know if people know Burley Fisher Books, independent bookshop. Gonna, they're about to launch their own publishing venture. And there was also, it was a great year for um, experimental poetry pamphlets. <laughs> um, Sean Bonney's Ghosts, I thought was amazing. Um, there was a new pamphlet from JH Prynne, which was great. Um, Verity Spot, um, and in some ways actually that's part of my year has been kind of engaging with. Uh, kind of poetry scene more than the art scene <laughs> to be honest
0: fair uh, enough but I think like most people it seems like there's a consensus on the panel today that actually what you need to do is spend some time away from the like mm. usual um, spaces and contexts that we're supposed to inhabit in order to kind of re-energize really absolutely uh, and with that I'm, I'm going to ask you to open the envelope and name the final award for the 2017 Immaterial Awards studio visit
7: The award for Moment of 2017 goes to Lyle Ashton-Harris.
0: All right, so the final award goes to Lyle Ashton-Harris, and the controversy around American artist Dana Schutz's painting of... I think she's American. Uh, Was she American? Mm -hmm. American artist, yeah. Dana Schutz's painting of Emmett Till produced a lot of ink, keystrokes and talk this year, much of it without lasting merit or value. It did however provide studio visit with its moment of the year for 2017. During an overlong and deftly boring conference at the Whitney Museum convened to start a conversation about accountability, representation and race, the brilliant and legendary artist Lyle Ashton Harris articulated the anger and exasperation that we've all felt at the end of conferences in which much heartfelt sentiment was articulated but nothing was done. At the Whitney, Poet Claudia Rankin's ponderous closing speech wrapped up the day by putting a blanket of thankful profundity over the close to boiling over rage. By using the irritating rhetorical device of speaking calmly and evenly with long gaps between everything that you say in order to add a sense of gravity and import <laughs> to otherwise banal observations that you make. As such, Lyle's interjection wasn't just about the Whitney. Lyle interjected for all of us, for anyone who's ever sat through a day-long art institution conference that came to nothing. And this year, there have been many. So Lyle seemed to be standing up for all of us, and here he is to close out the show.
3: I think that any evening should end with Richard... With I was going to say Richard White, but with James Baldwin. And James Baldwin said that artists are human beings and their greatest responsibility is to other human beings. And that question I think should be involved in the making of art. How am I responsible to other human beings in the making of anything I make? So I thank you all for starting this discussion, and, um, and, I, and I hope that we will have other venues in which to
8: continue it.
3: Yes, yes. Sure, can
8: I give you a mic? I definitely respect what you're saying, Chloe, but this is not the first time this is happening. You know, this is going back to black male. No, um, no, no, I know. I I think, Michelle, you said to refer to Thelma's catalog, but also let's deal with the reaction to the show itself. So I think it's important to realize this is nothing really new. This is an expansion, you know, what's going on. And it's not, I mean, black artists, Raoul Peck, the Haitian, did a seminal film, um, I Am Not Your Negro, where actually talked about, let's say, whiteness, and what was the stake on blackness extracted for to create that imaginary whiteness. Coco Fusco said 20 years ago that to ignore white ethnicities to redouble its hegemony. I did a project on Jeffrey Dahmer in 96. It took 20 years to make it, but it's in the, it's in the moment's collection. So it's not like black artists or artists of color have not actually imagined whiteness. I like Dana. The thing is, it's not complicated enough. I think the woman in the back somehow said, why is it that she not imagine? If it's about empathy, then let's deal, what would, what would it mean to sacrifice one son? It's not just in terms of her empathetic relationship to the mother, but to actually look at the mirror reflection of that whiteness that created a horror in the first place. So let's not act as if this is the first time this is happening. No, no, no. We can go back historically, go back to Hadrian Carby, 19th century, Frederick Douglass, one of the things that I had to deal with is to go deep in Frederick Douglass's archive. So let's, I don't want to have like a, a moment, like a Kumbaya moment. This is happening in 2017. This is something we have been resisting for a long time. So let's deal with the historical specificity, but also the cultural nature that has taken place. I just need to just say, and I love the Whitney. I'm a alumni of the Whitney. But when someone came to my studio, a curator of education, to ask about black male representation, she knew about the. She did not know about the Black Male Pop Popular Culture Conference. Now, how could an educator, uh, a curator of education, at a leading institution in the U.S. not know about Black Popular Culture? So that's where we are right now. So I don't want to have like a kumbaya moment, let's deal with the problem of cultural amnesia, not just with the Whitney, all the institutions. My students are somehow saying we don't want cultural sensitivity, we want cultural authority, is what we want right now. All right, so that's where we are right now. Yeah.